Hello and welcome to this episode of the Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. Today I speak with Professor Chris Paul, who's written a book about meritocracy in video games and the problem with it. So, thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Professor Chris Paul, author of The Toxic Meritocracy of Video Games, Why Gaming Culture is the Worst. Thank you for speaking with me. So first, um, how did you get into studying and writing a book on the uh, subject? And, and you can go back as far as you'd like. Sure. Um, I, so, that's an excellent question that I've heard you ask a bunch of people, and now I have to answer myself. <laughs> um, so I, I, I started uh, out uh, doing work um, in my grad school. Uh, I'm a rhetorician. So rhetoricians traditionally study speeches. I find speeches terribly boring, uh, so I started studying digital media instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did some early work on the World Wide Web. Um, it wasn't energ- energizing to me. Uh, I wasn't finding a lot of reward from it. Um, so uh, I started looking at video games and uh, the academic study of video games just being up, picking up. Um, and I started writing some things and it resounded well. Um, I did a first book and it went okay. Um, and then as I was reflecting um, after my first book, um, I was about to put in my tenure file. Um, and a tenure file for an academic is a weird sort of thing. It's a moment where they're either going to tell you you have a job for life or you're about to get fired. <laughs> um, and so, like, it's no stake to that question at all. Um, and the feedback that I had gotten, uh, because I work at a place called Seattle U, uh, Seattle University, which is a Jesuit institution, was that I needed to better articulate my fit with the mission of the university. And coming from state schools and not being a Catholic, that was completely foreign to me. Um, so we got this big um, announcement for the seminar that they run to educate us on Jesuit values. Um, and it went out to the whole campus, and I quickly deleted it. And then um, I got a specific request the next week that said, Dear Chris, would you consider this? And then I'm like, oh, crap, I got to go to it. Um, and so I spent 15 days, two hours a day, uh, over the course of a year going to these things. But at the end, we read this piece by a uh, Jesuit named Father Hans Kohlenbach. Um, and he wrote it, and he laid out this framework for what Jesuit higher education is. They basically have three parts, at least to me. The first thing is, you should do what you care about. Um, you should do, make a difference in the world. And then, when the heart is touched by direct action, the mind can be challenged to change. And I'm like, dude, you're writing about video games. This is all about video games. Uh-huh. Um, and I thought, this is great. Um, I was reading a bunch of stuff about meritocracy at the time, and the culture around gaming was nasty. Um, and then Gamergate happened, and I felt like I needed to do something, and that uh, this book became an intervention that I felt I could make in the field, uh, where I could bring some things together um, and speak out about something that I thought was important. So that's where this book came from. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, let's talk about the book, and I'll say, um, just to start off, it's very readable. It's like, it's full of just really interesting concepts, but it's not, you know, it's not weighted down in the writing style. It just flows nicely. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Uh, that was a lot of work. Uh, the first book doesn't read like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, big priority on this. And big shout-out to my editor, Jason Wiedemann, at the University of Minnesota Press and the reviewers that helped me push toward uh, a more accessible kind of writing because I felt like this needed to get read by people who play video games and, more most importantly, people who make video games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so let's talk about the book. How do you, how do you lay it out? Oh. How do you progress through the, the book? So uh, my primary argument in the book is that uh, I go back to the foundation of meritocracy. Right? It's kind of a place where I start from. Um, and the idea of meritocracy is advanced by a guy named Michael Young. Um, and Michael Young's a really interesting dude. Uh, he's a British guy who 
was writing this book called The Rise of the Meritocracy, and it's a dystopian kind of British novel that's written as a message from the future back to the past. And he, the, the point of the book is actually critiquing meritocracy, that if we follow this too far, our society will fall apart. Um, and this is the place where we popularize the term. There's this other stuff around there where we want to get into the weeds, but I don't think we need to go there. Um, and actually, he writes a follow-up after um, Britain swerves definitively toward the meritocracy in the 90s into the early 2000s. And he's like, we're doing this wrong. We, we have a problem. And the central issue that he finds with meritocracy, uh, or a central issue, is that at the point that we go into a meritocracy, when we're successful, we believe that we earned it. Mm-hmm. And I stop thinking about luck. Um, and once we think that we earned it, we internalize that, and we become really rude to other people. That's just bad. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of uh, different research that I delve into from sociology and psychology um, and other places that make the argument that meritocracy can be a really problematic thing. And one of the most uh, harmful, one of the most uh, difficult pieces of it is those people who are successful are um, cognitively captured. And as soon as we even start critiquing meritocracy, even those who um, or are applying for meritocracy, even those who don't benefit from it, start defending it. It's just baked into who we are. Um, and it is so interesting giving presentations about this book and just see, watch people get triggered by critiquing meritocracy and they'll defend like, no, I earned it or I suffered these things or this or down. And it's not always about you, you know, it's about the system and the way the system works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I make an argument that video games aren't idealized and actualized meritocracy, that through their their uh, design and their narratives, they forward meritocratic ideas. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons we have a toxic culture in video games. Mm-hmm. Now, do you look at, um, do you analyze studies on this or do you how much do you delve into video games themselves how do you approach that oh i don't i don't a lot into video games the video games is the fun and the easy part uh so i break down a bunch of different games um uh one of the places where i like uh like some of the early criticism of the book was about uh, this guy doesn't play games not he doesn't do this mm-hmm. and i talk about around 100 150 games in the book mm-hmm. but um, there's a gameography at the end that breaks down all those games that I talk about. Mm-hmm. And I go from AAA titles to indie titles um, to mobile games, uh, trying to run the gamut to make the argument that all of these, many of these games are fostering meritocracy in different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it shouldn't be a surprise that we have a problematic culture because we've worked so definitively toward meritocracy. Mm-hmm. And I, I get the impression that even if, if someone, a reader, were uncomfortable with the things you're saying at a minimum, uh, you could get a good idea of how to approach game design in general. You know, how, how do how do players think, and and how 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 are the tasks and, and obstacles structured, that sort of thing. Um, I hope so. There are a couple of sections that I pull out where I specifically try to write to game designers, mm-hmm. and uh, like the hard bit is, I'm a critic. This is what I do well. I'm hoping designers that do that well pick this up and are like, this causes them to think about things differently. Mm-hmm. And my argument hopefully is taken uh, in good faith where I'm not saying we should get rid of these games, mm-hmm. but we need to think carefully about when we use this and when we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have a bunch of tools in your bag and you just keep going to one, mm-hmm. that's, we can do more than that. We can do better than that. Um, and I think that one of the examples that I cite in the end is uh, uh, in the book of different ways of doing things. There's a game called Journey, uh, developed uh, largely by a guy named Genova Chen. Um, and they came at it from the angle of games prime us to be jerks to one another. 
So what would happen if we took out a bunch of things that cause us to be jerks together and how would that change our interactions in the game? Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, Journey is a more positive game where people tend to act with each act toward each other more nicely in large part because they can't interact with each other that much. Mm-hmm. Do you think change will be affected um, or will be created more Will it start with indie games or AAA? Probably indie. Like most of the games I cite, they kind that I think are doing interesting things are indie games because mm-hmm. they just have less risk. Mm-hmm. Um, a huge problem for AAA right now is it costs so much money to make a game mm-hmm. that you're going to make the games for the people you know are already there. Yeah. Um, and even if that puts like a ceiling on how much money you can make, it also puts a floor underneath how much money it's going to cost you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I'm not the person who could fund a multi-million dollar AAA title that would, that may not make money. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think space is happening in mobile, um, that are, tend to be designed differently, mm-hmm. um, largely because those games target different kinds of people that sometimes that may not have the same sort of predispositions to what a game should be. Mm-hmm. What age group do you think, uh, would be would be sort of the best candidate for change. Would, and if we take today, you know, would it be kids age eight and under? Would it be more preteens, teens, adults? You know, what do you see in that regard? I don't know if it divides up fully by age. I think it divides up a decent part based on how closely they identify with the game ideology in the first place. Mm-hmm. And those who do not may be able to get more challenged than those who do. But I would like to hope that all of us could think about this. Uh, and the intent of what I'm trying to do is at least shake folks that might be thinking about games are only this way. Mm-hmm. But even if the argument pushes them, get them to at some point think, ah, oh, I see this now or I see that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I teach any sort of media criticism class, the goal of the media criticism is to get you to a point where it changes the way you look at everything for the rest, for the rest of it, for the rest of time. It doesn't mean you can't still enjoy a game that's meritocratic. I still play them plenty. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy a movie if we criticize it. But hopefully each time you look at that text or the next text, you're thinking about it a little bit differently and and uh, start critiquing it internally. Mm-hmm. I think just just the idea of um, getting people to think this way will can inspire just like new and more interesting games, if nothing else. Yeah! Um, yeah! Like, uh, there's a game that I talk about at the end, uh, Part of the stuff was written a while ago. So there's a game called Paper Speed that if people haven't checked it out, they should. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was a 2014 game. And you play an uh, immigration officer in the Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a game that, as I describe it, shouldn't be interesting to play, but it's incredibly powerful and interesting and rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's cool things going on. Um, and who would think that a game about being uh, an immigration officer would be interesting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but... <laughs> Um, exactly. And it's dark and it's powerful and does all kinds of things that make you reflect on, at least made me reflect on my position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you familiar with the, um, you know, I, I'm blanking on what they're called, but, you know, sort of the weekend competitions where people get together and are given a theme and, and create a game in 48 hours? A game jam. Um, do you think, have you come across... Any, any of these where they're introduced to the concepts you're talking about? Like, hey, the theme is you're going to make a, a game that's not, you know, what we've always seen, you know. Most game jams will take up some sort of theme that pushes the boundaries, at least the ones that I know of. I don't know of 
any that it's specifically listed from this book, but I think it'd be interesting, and that would be accessing a kind of person that is more likely to build the next cool thing mm-hmm. than I am, because that's not my gift. Mm-hmm. Do you see... Um do you see diversity in game jams? Because I, I just looking at the statistics um, that you present at the start of the book, um, there's not much diversity. Do you see wh- where in the gaming world do you see diversity? Um, that's an excellent question. Not in development, mm-hmm. although there are some places that are trying to change that. Right, there are some incubators that are trying to get more women into game design. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some places that are trying to do different things, um, and there's things like uh, there's a conference called QGCon that is queerness in gaming mm-hmm. um, and I think that they there's some interesting designers working in those spaces mm-hmm. um, it's hard like uh, I think that the, there's plenty of uh, political economy critique of the game industry and the way that it drives us to a particular sort of thing mm-hmm. and effectively if you think about the number of kids that now grow up or have been growing up wanting to be game designers mm-hmm. it's substantial and then they effectively get churned through a machine and who's going to put up with that it's young, younger folks that are disproportionately white and disproportionately male because those are the gamers that came before them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have to put up with working conditions that are problematic, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just get run through the machine and then there's a ready supply of new people. Um, I think that creating more humane spaces for game design um, might get us a different population of people. But all of tech suffers from a lack of diversity, right? It's not just video games, although video games are especially bad. Mm-hmm. Looking and valorizing uh, different networks and finding different people. And in higher ed, it's not like uh, higher ed is a bastion of diversity either. So I'm part of the problem too. Mm-hmm. Do you think um, where where someone falls on either side of the arguments you're making, does it line up pretty close to sort of their political leanings, or do you see... Or is it beyond that? I hope we can cut across. Um, and there are plenty. There are plenty of uh, there are plenty of progr- otherwise progressive people that I have triggered with my arguments. Hmm. Uh, and I would hope that um, there are people on the political right that can also see that if we push too far in the in the uh, I can do it all myself thing, mm-hmm. we're not recognizing the social structures that help us get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's more room to play there. Um, although, uh, when my, my, my uh, article, when the book idea, or at least an article about the book, circulated in the conservative blogosphere, that was an interesting moment in the barrel. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Turning on Breitbart is, a, is an interesting experience. Yeah. Um, so what other um, significant secondary issues do you explore in the book, apart from what we've been talking about? Um, I try to find solutions, and a couple of the places that I look are in uh, higher ed admissions recruiting um, and in sports. So in higher ed, one of the things that I think is interesting is the way that schools go out of their way to try to that will class in ways that promotes some difference um, and ways that that's been successful. And most notably, um, some of the pipeline issues that they found where there are kids that are qualified that don't even think of applying to a school in the first place. Mm. So how do you overcome that? Like, how do you get in that community? How do you get to know them? How do you build relationships so that when the time comes, you do find the really good students? Mm. Um, and then in sports, one of the things that's really interesting about the difference between sports and the difference between games is in sports, basically every substantial athlete or any a major event, one of the key talking points is luck and the role that luck plays. Mm. And so that 
even like when a pitcher talks about pitching a perfect game, they'll inevitably talk about the lucky event that he needed to have happen in order to get there. Mm-hmm. Well, we won the championship because the things just broke the right way for us. Mm-hmm. But when gamers talk about playing a perfect game, they actually need a technically perfect game, mm-hmm. which is very different to me. Um, and that notion of contingency and serendipity um, is a big difference. Would you say that that's, since games are all, all programmed, someone might approach it as almost, maybe not consciously, but it's a math, a mathematical puzzle with, with one solution, and the only way I could have succeeded is to have calculated it perfectly using my ability. Yep. That, that nails it. Um, uh, there's a great book uh, in early games, there, early modern game studies by Jesper Ewell called Half Real, where he talks about video games as a, as a golden combination between computers and fantasy systems, fantasy ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and that computers become the rule-following engine that a game gets built around. Mm-hmm. And games feel like they can be a solved problem, that you can play a best, a perfect game. And until you involve people in it, it could be technically correct you could play perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the celebration of games like uh, Bloodborne, um, where they're really, really masochistic games that are really difficult to play. Mm-hmm. But the people who get into it like it because it pursues technical perfection. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Because there is a perfect. Yeah. Hmm. So, what resources did you use to do your research? Um, I mainly look at text. Mm-hmm. So, um, for me, I uh, did a bunch of reading, uh, both uh, academic articles and otherwise. Um, I did a bunch of reading game forums um, and reading about events on game forums or game journalism. So things like Kotaku and uh, GameIndustry.biz and basically any, any sources talking about games that I could because mm-hmm. those generate the text for me to start to be able to make my argument. Then I did a bunch of playing the games and reading about games and reviews of games mm-hmm. uh, to try to get angles on how I can stitch my argument together um, to help, help it make sense and expand it to as many different kinds of games as I thought was feasible. Okay. And I guess the games, you access them through, because um, there are many different ways to get games now. Um, sure. Um, I guess, you know, I'm thinking IO and Steam, and and um, then yeah. you can just go out and buy them. Yeah. Or... Yep. And play them. And then um, talking, like, one of the parts of my writing process is I know I have a decent idea when I can go to a conference and present an early version of the idea mm-hmm. in front of some of my peers. And you can just, like, the talking is the important part of the process for me. So I put together an outline, I put together, like, a steered slide, and I put together an initial talk. And then you can just kind of feel the room, mm-hmm. and I can feel myself going. And there's this moment where you've got, like, yes, this is something. Mm-hmm. And that's also a moment where then you start getting feedback from colleagues of, oh, have you looked at this game, or have you done this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and as the review, you get reviews back um, as part of the process of writing the book. And they say, oh, this is good, but if you pushed it this way, it might be even better. Have you ever um, just watched other people play? You know, there's plenty on YouTube, and, you know, there's the competitions you can watch. Do you ever do that? Sure. Um, I'm not a big Twitch person because I'm old, Hmm. um, or at least older. That didn't hit me right. Um, But I have some friends that study Twitch. Hmm. Um, I watch some YouTube videos from the games that I like. Hmm. Um, It's basically the only way I can keep up with one of the games I do play, which is FIFA, is watching people that are actually good at it Hmm. and being like, oh, if I push the buttons like them, I'll get better, too. Mm-hmm. I just turn out uh, watching some of the how-tos. Mm-hmm. Like, there are people that are much better about games. And that whole industry of videos and uh, 
streaming and podcasts about games is fascinating too. It's just this thing that comes up mm-hmm. and is now incredibly lucrative and a possible career path for people. It's kind of mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. And I ask not so much um, whether you're trying to learn how to win a game, but you know, sure. if you just watch the game to see how it's constructed and what it takes, you know, what kind of cooperation and, you know, how, how it fits within the, um, you know, the theories you're, you're putting out. I try to play as much as I can if I'm going to write about it. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, there are certain games that just don't resound for me or don't land for me in a particular sort of way. Mm-hmm. And there are moments where, like, it's more productive for me to go back and watch the video mm-hmm. than to play the game. So, like, when I'm talking about the beginning of Skyrim and how Skyrim gets set up, it's more useful for me to watch the intro video again on YouTube than playing through the whole game because I want to talk about this particular moment of how this game's set up. So watching through that a couple of times is more uh, gets me what I need better than playing the deep systems later in the game. Are there any... Um, speci- has, oh, I'm sorry. It has made my gaming way more instrumental, though. Like, I basically... I rarely play games now if I don't have some sort of angle that I'm going to write about later, which is complicated. Mm. Yeah. Some of the fun goes away. Yeah, no, I understand. Are there any um, game designers or game companies that are noteworthy and that they they break the meritocracy mold in some way? Sure, I think some indie devs are doing it. I talked about uh, Journey and that game company earlier mm-hmm. that I think did something really interesting. Um, I think that uh, the people that, that the people that make Gone Home did something really interesting when they did that, and people pushing the boundaries of the whole idea of a walking simulator in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, a variety of indie development is a space where things are getting pushed. I also think that like uh, Rocket League is a really interesting game mm-hmm. uh, in that uh, while people can be very skilled at it, there's uh, when you're playing uh, basically a version of soccer with cars that you control, mm-hmm. um, there's chance and that, that kind of comes from sport, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting and notable. Hmm. Okay. So I, I can almost guess the answer to this question, but what part of the research was most enjoyable? Oh, I, actually, I might give a different answer. Uh, <laughs> I like the writing. Mm-hmm. The writing is really fun for me. When I get to a point where I can finally write and it all comes out and then you have something, that's really cool. But the games are fun, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, some of the fun gets sucked out of the game because I'm, watching, I'm playing the game with an angle rather than playing the game to play the game, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you ever catch yourself trying to write notes while you're trying to play a game and and you mess up your... (laughs) Oh, absolutely, right? Because you're distracted. Like, Mm -hmm. you're not doing the same, like, uh, I'm not doing the same thing. And there are games that I have largely enjoyed that I've had to put down because, like, I don't have an argument here. And I have limited amounts of time. So why am I spending my time doing this? The moment that games become your research, it's always really interesting teaching a video games class because I'll get a certain number of students in the class that want to take it because it's a video games class, and they think it's going to be easy, and they think it's going to be fun. And the moment playing video games becomes their homework, there's just this delightful recognition of the class that this is no different than the forced reading they were having to do in another class. <laughs> in another class. It's great. That's <laughs> um, what did you find that was most surprising in your research? Um, I, I think it was how pervasive this was. That it didn't really take long to find examples to build up the book. And it was more about what do I need to cut and what do I need to include. Um, and I thought that that was really interesting, that it was it was less about finding enough examples and more about what can't I talk about 
I just can't have this book be infinite. You know, like. Mm-hmm. And that's the bit where I also knew I was on to something. Yeah. What did you find uh, to be the most difficult um, issue or question to research that maybe you still aren't sure of of an answer for? Um, how much of the history of meritocracy to include and how much of it to leave out? Um, that was a debate that my editor and I had for a while of like, how much of this is stuff that I needed to research and write about to get me to a point where I could write authoritatively about the subject and how much of it did the reader need? So there's about another, you know, uh, several thousand words that ends up getting chopped from the book at one point because it's basically just a historical tour of meritocracy and the way that it's worked over time that I probably needed to do that work, but it just read flat. Um, and getting to that point of recognizing like uh, that some of your best stuff or some of the stuff that you're most attached to needs to get cut to serve the bigger purpose of the book, that's always a tough one for me. Yeah. Was there anything you discovered that emotionally moved you, either positively or negatively? Um, the research by uh, Shannon McCoy and Brenda Major about how uh, we get triggered when we talk about when we're primed for meritocracy, we get triggered and we start defending the system even if we um, aren't benefited by it. That was a moment that was just like, oh my goodness, so much stuff in the sense. It was like uh, it, the, the, the pieces click into place and you're like, I understand what's going on right now and why this has been so hard for me and it's why it's so hard for people to hear it is that we tend to defend the system especially those of us who benefited from it, uh, because we want to believe that our skill is what got us here. And it made perfect sense, but it was a moment of great emotional resonance for me. Have you um, had an instance where you dealt with someone who was completely um, resistant to your ideas and finally accepted them? You know, was there, can you, can you did that ha- ever happen? And can you describe what it was like? Well, I've had plenty of people who emailed me and said, uh, said unkind things, um, but I don't think that I've gotten them to the point of recognition. I do think that there's some folks in the game studies community who didn't figure out quite how sharp my critique was and what they would make of it, mm-hmm. um, and they've come around a little bit on it, and I think it's infiltrated them. Um, I have a colleague that called a lot of the work that I do is stealth feminism, because <laughs> I'm like three white dudes. So you don't see it coming the same way. I can talk about my positionality lets me talk to some people that might not receive it well otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's worked on some people. And you just get this moment where they, they don't necessarily realize, they don't necessarily acknowledge, but then you can see their work moving forward. It's changed a little bit. Right? And it just, it just moves it tick. And that's really what you're going for. Um, it's unlikely that you're, you get that uh, awakening, Hosanna moment of like, my whole world has changed. But when you can move them just a tick, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the flip of that, is that there are people that I work with at my school that take video games a lot more seriously now. It was really cool to go back to the mission of ministry folks who got me hooked on the Arupe Seminar in the first place, who changed the way I think, and be like, you know what I got? I just wrote a book about video games that I couldn't have written without you guys. And they're like, you wrote about what? <laughs> and it was like I presented at a couple of Jesuit conferences, and watching them like take video games seriously has been really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's still amazing to me that people don't recognize the um, the societal societal changes that video games are are creating and will continue to create. Um, just just in it, in in the field of learning, I mean, people are now learning uh-huh. with video games, you know, and not just knowledge; uh-huh. they're learning reflexes. Um, they're learning physical skills using video games. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that a side, side related issue to that is that some of us that are proponents of video games don't always recognize that if there's likely good, there's also likely bad. And we probably need to own all of that. And we probably don't know enough about it yet. Mm-hmm. So temper all of our enthusiasm and hatred altogether. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it, it's not just a magical thing. It's also got some problems, and we don't fully understand how this media form is going to work. So mm-hmm. let's keep working on it. Let's keep working through it together and see what we can learn. Yeah. That was also... It's surely important. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was going to just... Uh comment on something else that you said you know about stealth feminism um there's also the argument that oh you just feel guilty for all the good things that you have um you know that you're trying to make up for guilt um i'm sure you've heard that that argument as well or that that criticism yeah uh guilt guilt doesn't really drive me because i i own my lucky pretty well like Hmm. i grew up uh in this country i had a stable two-parent household uh or mostly stable i had um you know, uh, they were both educators, so education was pushed from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, and while there are certainly hardships in my in my uh, upbringing, mm-hmm. I'm I'm pretty good, and like my kids are even better off than I am, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I can look back at my specific life and point to examples of this stupid dumb luck. Mm-hmm. Like I tried to do something wrong, and something broke for me, and that's the moment where I started to realize this critique of meritocracy has some resonance, simply because I could point to specific events in my life. And be like, I tried to do something different, but however it broke down, it ended up serving me well. And if it were up to me, I probably wouldn't have gotten as been as successful as I have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it brings in all kinds of um, ideas of critical thinking, um, experimentation. Um, what else? I, I had another thought, uh, and also, you know, trying to bring in more people. You know, team effort. I think creates. Yeah bigger things than if you just try to be the the lone guy who does it, you know, I'll be the top dog and, and you know. Yeah. So. We just get more cool stuff when we bounce off of each other. And when we bounce off more different kinds of people with different kinds of ideas, we can do more cool generative stuff together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, getting locked into one way of thinking, it just means you're not going to advance anymore. Um, yep. So, so I think it has, yeah, it's important across the whole, any kind of science, any field of science. So, so what do you, uh, and another question, which I think (laughs) we've already maybe answered, but I'll ask it. uh, What do you hope the book will do? Um, I hope it gets people thinking and talking a little bit. Um, I deliberately wrote it to a broader audience so that it should be accessible to anybody. Um, It's not, uh, it was deliberately written not to be another academic tone. Um, and I would love to see some game designers read it, and I cannot wait to see what games they make afterward. Like, I, I look forward to playing them. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. Um, can you speak to any difficulties you had in getting the book um, finished or published, and how you overcame those? Sure. Uh, the main thing was time. Um, I had this idea. I had worked with Jason McLean. Jason Wiedemann at University of Minnesota Press before on some stuff, and he's given me some good feedback. And the process of having the idea to having the book in my hands was about four years. Mm. Um, and it just is slow, right? You write some things, you get some feedback. It was a bit of feedback. You incorporate those things. It takes a while to get the feedback. Kind of back and forth just takes time. Um, this book started out as like a, it was going to be a 30,000 word project mm. and a short book. And then it just 
Um, so that was interesting. Um, and getting feedback from colleagues and being pushed to make it uh, richer. I think it's a, such a much better book than what I originally said in Minnesota Press. Mm-hmm. And I'm really thankful to the uh, editorial staff there um, and the reviewers that they, they sent it to to really give me some good feedback to push it forward. But it took a while. Um, and that's hard because uh, in a process that takes you know several years, you can't write with like, the word recent. Because if you write with the word recent, three years later, it's not recent anymore. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out and plot your book around this needs to last longer. Um, which I think was also good for me, so hopefully the book has resonance moving forward in the future, because it's not just something that's certain for right now. Yeah, you're right. I, I hadn't even thought about that. When you said four years, it did, it, how many different games have, have come and gone in that period? Yeah. You know, how many changes? Yes. And then, like, uh, I wrote the original conclusion, and I had all these books that were, um, that all these games that were contemporary for four years ago. And then I got to go back in, and some of them still work, but some of them I had to take out. And I certainly had to add new stuff, because if all the examples are old, you know, what happens? And the lag between final versions of the press, or like most workable versions of the press to print, is still like six to nine months. You have to be really careful with what you pick out when you're in the field and move so quickly. Yeah, and then it becomes a history book. Yeah. Hey, like, when I was writing, and when I sent my last version, Fortnite wasn't even really a thing. Like, like Battle Royale wasn't a mode, and now, now it's like, I wish I could have written some about it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, and unfortunately, some readers are going to say, hey, he's not even talking about that. You know, what's, you know, you know, complain. Hey, you know, it's a reasonable criticism. Like, I'm not. But, vagary yeah. is publishing in the, the industry. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think the, the points you make are still valid. So, for, for better or worse, you know. Thank yeah. you. What's your next writing project? Um, so, I have a handful of things. Um, I wrote a short essay about this piece, uh, about this book, for a place called First Person Scholar. It's called Room to Reflect. Uh, it's up online. Uh, and uh, it's basically just about uh, my partner and I placed some Facebook ads mm-hmm. about the book and then the feedback that I got and reflecting updating a little bit the examples that I use, um, which I think uh, gave me a chance to revisit this stuff after some of the criticism of the book happened. Hmm. Uh, and then uh, I have a piece coming out with a co-author named Nick Montalvo, um, and it is a book uh, with MIT Press that should be out next next fall, uh, next summer fall, so about a little under a year from now. Hmm. Uh, it's written in the can. Um, it's about uh, the rhetorical construction of real games, so what games get centered and what games don't. Um, and what we think that does to limit the kinds of people playing and the kinds of games available. Um, and then I've got a book draft for my next project um, that's about free-to-play and mobile games and biases about free-to-play and mobile games mm-hmm. and what that says about the industry. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's what I'm up to. You, ju- you made me think of another question, which is analysis of video games developed in non-English-speaking countries. Yeah, um, not my forte, but there's some cool stuff out there. Um, mm-hmm. There's uh, 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 Salvo, my co-author, does, did a, wrote an interesting book called From Atari to Zelda about Japanese game development. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some interesting work being done uh, about um, different kinds of Japanese games and have been some work done about different kinds of Japanese games and just the different cultural context in which they're written. Um, and I'm interested in exploring some some of the ways that uh, free-to-play norms from Asia have come to the U.S. and how that's changed uh, expectations of how games work. But yeah, uh, there's a handful of people doing some really cool work about games from different cultures and the different norms they have. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm also thinking of, um, you know, say Africa or Latin America. Um, and I know that, I know they consume a lot of, um, American games, but I'm sure there are designers coming up with interesting new concepts. Well, and it's one of the arguments that we make in the, uh, the real games book is that a game at the center is disproportionately thought to be made by either a Japanese developer or a U.S. Euro developer. So when a developer from outside of that context becomes successful, uh, they're immediately uh, criticized or thought of as lesser. Uh, so we specifically talk about the example, I don't know if you remember a game, a mobile phone game called Sloppy Bird mm. by Dong Lin. Yeah. Um, and we track some of the coverage and end up making this game that becomes incredibly popular as just a single game developer in Vietnam. Mm. And the reception of the game was really rough. Um, whereas later on, um, some Western game developers, we did a floppy game jam, bringing it back to game jam. Mm. Um, and their, the, the press coverage, the game press coverage of their games was way more, uh, had way more adulation and praise, even though they were specifically inspired by this other guy's game that people were ripping two weeks before. Hmm. And I just want to quickly correct something in case some of my listeners get annoyed that I refer, I said non-English speaking and I mentioned Africa. Obviously, there are plenty of people who speak English in Africa, but, um, I guess more of my question was non-Western, you know, or, um, you know, non-US. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So where can people find, um, the book and any of your thoughts and writings on social media? Um, Books up on Amazon. Uh, the books up on the University of Minnesota Press website, so you can order it uh, either place. Um, uh, the, I am on Twitter. I'm real underscore Chris underscore Paul. I don't use Twitter a ton, uh, but I do use it at conferences. So one of my conferences will get a bunch of stuff about what's going on there, um, and uh, I'll tweet out any of my new articles and things coming out. Um, and then uh, there's that decent first-person scholar that people can check out if they want just like a little sample of the book. Um, there's also a piece that I wrote about um, uh, the book for University of Minnesota Press's blog, um, and it's about uh, Mercy and Overwatch and the reception of Mercy and Overwatch and how I think that ties into meritocratic discourses if you want a little bit more taste of what I'm doing. Hmm. Okay. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? I don't think so. Thanks, Chris. I appreciated it. Oh, yeah, I did, too. It was very interesting. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.